We cannot always assure the future of our friends, said Henry Kissinger. We have a better chance of assuring our future if we remember who our friends are. Well, I know exactly who my friends are, and I'm looking forward to a long future together. Because I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. Season 4, Interlude, interview with Michael Oren on the post-1967 political reality. Well, hey everybody, I'm super excited to say that I'm not alone today on The Jewish Story. I'm joined today by Dr. Michael Oren. He's an American-born Israeli historian, author, politician, former ambassador to the United States, and is an expert on the very topic we've been discussing for so long, which is the impact of the 1967 war on not only American Jewish identity, but in particular, what I'd like to speak about with Dr. Oren today is the impact on the American Israeli political relationship. But before I do, first I want to say hello. Dr. Oren, is it okay to call Dr. Oren? Michael's fine too. Oh, Michael's fine. Well, we share that. So before we even get started, I'm actually incredibly curious. I was looking on your website before we met today, and I saw that you have a new book out, which is actually fiction. Can you tell me a little bit about not only the book, but I didn't realize that you were a fiction author. Uh Aha, many people don't. The new book is called The Night Archer. It is a collection of more than 50 short stories that draws on every aspect of my life, professional, personal, and otherwise, because as you said, I've been an, an author and a, and a soldier and a father and a, and a grandfather now. Um, oh, and it's doing very well. And it's, it's, it's very different. Most short stories collections are usually around a single theme. The only theme here is that there is no theme. It's perfect for a, you know, an ADHD corona-driven uh, audience. I've been writing fiction uh, since I was 12. I started as a poet and then moved on to playwrights and screenplays. Uh, did a time in Hollywood where I was, uh, believe it or not, I was Orson Welles' assistant. Um, Wait, just give us one snippet about that. I mean, what was it like to have a relationship with perhaps the greatest filmmaker in American history? I have been in, as you know, I've been in, I've been in the, the military for many years and I, would, I participated in several wars. I think working with Orson Welles was scarier. <laughs> All right. That kind of says it all. He has that reputation. But, you know, a privilege, I guess. And uh, I had to make a decision at that age. I was 21, whether I was going to stay in Hollywood or go, you know, live out my Israeli Zionist vision and dream. And I, and I did. I thought maybe, well, worst was worse. I'll always go back to Hollywood. I can only be a pastor for a certain amount of period of time. So I came here and never went back, which is very good, I think. But I kept writing. So I, I published several novels. People don't know this about me, uh, including one, which is um, it, it's actually a collection of novellas set in the Negev desert called Sand Devil. Yeah, I had and no I, idea. Only collection of, of novellas ever set in the Negev. Uh, and because I lived in the Negev for many years. This collection of short stories are short stories that I wrote while I was in office. Now, uh, in Israel, as in many democracies in the world, you can write, but you can't publish. So I could write, and I used to get up at ungodly hours in the morning and, and write and, and, and put out these stories. But I had to wait till I got out of Knesset, out of the government, uh, to actually publish the stories. So I'm delighted by this. I'm delighted to be able to talk about them. I've done a number of sort of very high-profile podcasts about this from um, the 92nd Street Y to The Forward and Moment Magazine. Uh, another one coming up uh, for a network established by the uh, Jewish Federations of North America. 85 JCCs are going to be on one Zoom talk about the Night Archer. That's, so that's dumb. Um, that's all the so, big Jews in America. Yeah, you know, the problem is nobody really knows how to market a book in Corona. Mm. You know, in the past, on a plane, you did, you know, 40 cities in four days and you went on various TV programs and you sold your book. I have not left 
basically what you see in the background here. And uh, so everything I'm doing by, by Zoom, by remote, and we're going to see if it works or not because the, the reviews have been outstanding and I've had great responses, but we just don't know how to sell a book in a day like today. Listen, the unknown finds many manifestations in this era. I can't resist. I, I want to dive into our primary topic in a second, but um, I just am curious as someone who writes both fiction and nonfiction as a historian, I'm curious, what do you see to be the relationship between fiction as a medium and history in terms of the power of using a story to communicate? I think this is going to tie in very well to the Six Day War thing. Let's hold up to the second part of the, my, my response. The first part of the response is that I write a lot about history in my fiction. Mm -hmm. In this collection, there's a story set in the 16th century about conquistadors. There's a story set in the 14th century about a Muslim uh, sultan in the Ottoman Empire. There's a story set in World War II. Uh, so I'm always drawing on my tools as an historian. And I have one story in particular, which is one of my favorite. It's called the 30-year the rule, which is about uh, a 30-year British rule over an imaginary island in the Indian Ocean. Mm -hmm. But it's a double entendre. The 30-year rule is the rule that exists in the state of Israel, as well as in other dem democratic societies, such as Great Britain, which holds that after 30 years, diplomatic documents can be declassified. Yes. Now, if you're a historian like I was for the Six-Day War, I started writing that book in 1998, and I was the first person to look at these documents from 1967 that had been declassified. That's the 30 year rule. Yeah. But what this story is pointing out, the limits of uh, diplomatic documents, because I also know as, as a diplomat, as a, as a statesman, that when, you, when a, an ambassador sits down to write a document, it is not objective. The ambassador is thinking about how that document is going to be looked at and read 30 years from that point. Mm. And it's highly, highly subjective. Now in my field of history, writing, there's a, a subfield called positivism. Uh, some of your listeners may be familiar with the work of Benny Morris. So Benny Morris, for example, doesn't believe in oral histories, doesn't believe in actually talking to anybody who participated in the events that he wrote about. He wrote many books about the 1948 war, but never talked to anybody who actually participated in that war because he believes that diplomatic documents are objective sources. But of course, they're not. And the whole positive, positive school is based on a myth. And what this short story wants to point out is, is a story about a diplomat going back to the British archives and reading documents that he himself wrote 30 years before and then telling the reader what the real story was. Wow. And <laughs> so I had a lot of fun with this short story. It's kind of a revenge, my revenge against the positivists, uh, plus a fun story to be with. Now, and draws in every aspect of your life, it sounds like, as a diplomat, as an author, as a historian. But now I'll come to the second part of the response, and that mm. is the high compliment, at least I have gotten as an historian, is that my books read like a novel. And that is not entirely accidental. And I look for, for topics that have great emotional and dramatic content. And you have to work very, very hard to make the Six-Day War less than riveting as a subject. True. It is one of the, one of the great, and there aren't many events like this in history. There are a few, not many. But the Six Day War is certainly one of them. And um, even I, you know, researching this was every day was, wow, I did my seat. And one of the things I found in the research I've done and also the responses from my listeners is that the narrative battle of the Six Day War is far from finished, of course, because the question of its meaning, the debates between the sort of religious, the political, the cultural significance, etc., right, are an ongoing part of the very fabric of the world we live in today, which is something I want to come to at the end. 
and the historiographical debate. Yes. Did Israel know that the war was going to happen? Did it know it was going to win the war? Did it trigger the war? Did it uh, want to complete the destruction of the Palestinian national project that wasn't completed? The destruction wasn't completed in 1948. You know, all of that is part of the battle too. You know, the, the, my book on the Six Day War opens with a phrase, which I'm rather proud, which is that, that wars in history eventually become wars of history. And the, the, the Six Day War only took six days, but the, the, the battle over the war and its meeting has gone on, you know, now for more than 50 years. And in some ways becomes more heated every day. I want to dive right in with your permission to some of the specifics. I have here a quote from American President John F. Kennedy which was said in private to Israeli Foreign Minister Golda Meir in 1962. Right. He said to Foreign Minister Meir that the United States has a special relationship with Israel, really comparable only to that which it has with Britain. I was a little ellipsis. I cut some stuff out of there. But my first question to you is, what is the nature of the foundation? I know you've written a book on the American interest in the Middle East. What makes this special relationship so? And as a follow-up, how would you characterize the impact of the Six-Day War on that relationship. It's interesting that the quote comes from Kennedy. Kennedy was highly critical of the state of Israel, particularly of Ben-Gurion. Kennedy never received a, a prime minister in the White House, an Israeli prime minister in the White House. He met with Ben-Gurion at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. And if you read the, the transcript of that conversation, it's a very tough conversation indeed mm-hmm. about Demona. Kennedy threatens the future of the relationship unless Israel comes clean, as he said, with what was going on in Demona. And there's actually a theory out there that Ben-Gurion resigned from office uh, later that year, in part in reaction to the fact that he couldn't, you know, he couldn't grapple with the threat that Kennedy posed to the state of Israel on the relationship. It's interesting that Kennedy, uh, that, that quote is attributed to Kennedy, one of the more challenging presidents we had. And it's, it's ironic that you know, we are the only country in the Middle East, and probably maybe the only country in the world that actually has a, a full memorial to President Kennedy outside of Jerusalem, Kennedy Memorial uh, Forest. Sure. Um, but as they say in, in Hebrew, wasalan <laughs> mutamavit. He did. <laughs> JFK. So, and there are several books on that topic too, by the way. So very, very good books about Kennedy's relationship with Israel. But having said that, he was right. Israel has a special relationship with the United States, which is um, unrivaled with the possible exception of that between Great Britain and the United States. And the reason for that is very specific. You know, most countries... Uh, can have a strategic relationship with the United States. They could have common uh, democratic values with the United States, but there's only one country that has both shared democratic values, a strategic alliance and shared spiritual roots with the United States. France doesn't have spiritual roots with, with the United States. Italy, no. Great Britain, arguably. America was, and even in, in these you know, less than observant times, remains the most religiously observant country in the industrialized world. More people go to a church of one stripe or another in the United States than any other uh, modernized country. And they read the Bible. The Bible is, of course, the, the ultimate bestseller in the United States. And in that Bible, God makes a promise to the Jewish people to rescue us from, uh, from exile, to restore us to our sovereignty uh, in our promised land. And there are tens and tens of millions of Americans who take that very seriously. God doesn't lie. And this connection between America and the idea, idea of a restored Jewish state goes back before the creation of the United States. It goes back to pilgrim times. Because the pilgrims knew their Bible very, very well. They, they studied Hebrew. They give Hebrew names to their kids. They made it a required language in, in the universities. I always say that James Madison uh, you know, failed Hebrew at Princeton and had it for another year. Um, 
Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu was almost the symbol of the United States. Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin wanted Moses to be the symbol, not, not the bald eagle. Uh, it's deeply, deeply ingrained. And presidents from John Adams to Abraham Lincoln to Woodrow Wilson were what you would call Zionists. They believed that the Jewish people had a right to return to their land, that the United States had an obligation to help the Jewish people uh, return to that land. So that's an, an immensely deep connection. If you would ask me of the three pillars, spiritual, democratic, and strategic, the spiritual is the biggest pillar. It's the deepest pillar in that relationship. It's completely unique. But having said that, we did not have, before 1967, we did not have much of a strategic relationship. Kennedy was the first uh, Kennedy to, to, to president to, to sell uh, Israel weaponry, though it was defensive weaponry. It was the Hawk missiles. Mm -hmm. You can still see them emplaced in, in, the, in the desert. Um, the Hawk missiles, not offensive weaponry. One of the big problems in the Six-Day War was that the Jordanian army had the most advanced tanks in the Middle East, the M60, the M60 Patton tank, um, which we didn't have. And it was the Jordanians' possession of that tank that led to the battle for Ammunition Hill. And some of the worst battles in the Six-Day War were fought because the Jordanians had, this, had these tanks. And we thought that those tanks were going to overrun West Jerusalem. So... America was, involved, was selling large amounts of weaponry to the Middle East, but not to us. And ultimately, we fought the Six-Day War without a single American bullet. A couple of, uh, you know, of World War II surplus M1 tanks. Other than that, really, uh, Sherman tanks. On the seventh day of that war is when American policymakers woke up and said, whoa, there's this little superpower that just defeated three Soviet-backed armies. And that maybe, maybe we should be allied with this country. And that was the birth of the true U.S.-Israel strategic alliance, which has become, to my mind, the most, uh, the deepest and most multifaceted strategic alliance which the United States has had with any country in the post-World War II period. Um, I, I recently read an article challenging me on that issue, but I've been inside it and I'll stick by that position. So what was America's primary interest then in the Middle East post-67? You alluded to the Cold War. Is that the oh, clean assumption? The two interests, and they were interrelated. One interest was oil. The United States was heavily dependent on Arab oil. Uh, and the other was the Soviet Union, and certainly keeping the Soviet Union away from the oil. <laughs> <laughs> so the Cold War and energy were the two major interests. So I'm going to pivot from the uh, foreign to the domestic, because we spent a lot of time, in fact, the last, I don't know, three or four episodes, the first the opening section of this season, um, speaking about the impact of 1967 on American Jewish identity, which is something I'm fascinated about. And in particular, how the war helped to consolidate, let's say, Zionism as the central ideal for American Jewry, which is something which I'm sure you're familiar was not a given, already been shifting before the war. But so my question for you is that Israel plays a, an interesting role in the cross current between domestic and foreign policy because of the nature of the organization of American Jewish people. Could you speak to that a little bit about how 67 affected that cross current between domestic and foreign policy for America? Well, here, you know, I guess I'm older than you. I'm older than just about anybody at this point. And someone who lived through this period and um, the, the six day war was, was totally and thoroughly transformative for American Jewry. So, you know, I'll give you the, the snapshot of American Jewry, you know, in, in the winter of 1966-1967. And that is a, a, a community which um, is keeping a very low profile, even though very proud of some 
successful members of that community like Sandy Koufax or the singer Alan Sherman or um, you know various actors certainly in Hollywood was a big Jewish industry um, but again remember the Israeli Prime Minister has never even been to the White House yet right. Right. Um, major American Jewish organizations like the American Jewish Committee are not pro-Israel APAC exists but no one's ever heard of APAC Israel was a, was a source of some pride but it was very low key. I know this is going to sound incredible today, but Jews in America did not talk about the Holocaust openly. I remember being, you know, 15 years old and, and seeing for the first time this very thin sort of reedy voiced man on the stage at my JCC uh, talking about Seget and talking about the Holocaust and being amazed that a man like Ellie Wiesel would get up there and talk about the Holocaust publicly because you didn't do that. You whispered about the Holocaust, mm -hmm. preferably down the basement. And the Six-Day War changed all that. In a certain way, it was a type of, I, let's say, expiation, a kapara, for uh, American Jewish inaction during World War II to save European Jewry. And I think we all, you know, sort of implicitly grew up with that guilt. And um, the, 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 the slogan back then was that Israel had enabled American Jews to stand with their back straight. Mm -hmm. which begs the question, why were the backs bent <laughs> before that? And the sense was that the backs were bent. Backs were bent because um, American Jews were confused about their identity. You know, I often say that the great American Jewish writers I, I grew up with, be Philip Roth, Bernard Malamud, uh, Saul Bellow, by the way, Saul Bellow's son is the, the editor of this book. <laughs> oh, yes. Adam. Um, you could summarize all of their books in one line. One question, how can I be American and Jewish at the same time? And young American Jews, including religious young American Jews, Haredi American Jews today, not only do not ask that question, they don't even understand the question. It's an unintelligible question to them. But that was the key question for us. How can we be American Jews? How could Sandy Koufax be the greatest pitcher and ever lived? and whether he was gonna pitch, pitch on Yom Kippur or not, yeah. okay? Big issues, okay? Um, the Six Day War began the process of reconciling American and American Jewish identity. And it took us to various places because um, I was a student of, of Arthur Hertzberg and in his day, the author of uh, The Zionist Idea. And in the early 70s, Hertzberg used to always say that the de facto religion of, of American Jewry is Israel watching. And this was true. American Jews would look in the newspaper for Israel. They'd read a book and look in the index under I. They'd vote in elections for the person who was running for dog catcher who was most pro-Israel. Remember my father saying, is he pro-Israel? Is he pro-Israel? Is he pro-Israel? Going through the, the whole ballot. And that lasted until the, the Yom Kippur War, which was a huge shock for American Jews, as it was for Israelis. The, the subsequent the oil boycott, the Yasser Arafat standing ovation at the UN, uh, the transformation of Europe into a generally anti-Israel body from pro-Israel, um, the rise of, of uh, campus radicalism as an anti-Israel an anti position among campus radicals. All this changed very, very quickly. I can't tell you how quickly this changed. And then American Jewry went off on different tangents. So in, for, for a community that had largely, was largely looking for a replacement for Jewish observance, Israel filled that gap. Mm -hmm. 
But when Israel became less luminous after Yom Kippur War, it took us it took, you know, a lot of the light out of us, American Jewry turned to, so to the Soviet Jewry movement, which became the de facto religion for the next, you know, several, for the next decade and a half. Then, then peace, <laughs> tikkun olam, became a de facto religion of, of, of large segments of, of American Jewry, of liberal American Jewry. This was a replacement. But for, you know, for several years there, it was not unusual to go into an American Jewish home and, and see, you know, posters of Golda Meir and Moshe Dayan, rock stars. Yeah. Dayan was a rock star. And uh, it's a general. An Israeli general was a rock star in America. That was the impact of the Six-Day War. America was now going to be allied with Israel. Israeli prime ministers would routinely come to the, to the White House and be welcomed as allies. That was hugely important for American Jewish identity. So, I mean, beyond the identity, it's commonly said, and, you know, these things grade even into sort of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, but it's commonly said that American Jews are extremely organized politically, that uh, population is distributed in key swing states, and that particularly in presidential elections, they play, let's say, a disproportionate role. So I'm curious is, um, what you would have to say about the post-67 impact of that cross-current between the domestic and the foreign affairs. That mostly, you know, a country like the United States would be looking at Israel as a, a foreign entity, as you said, a strategic common values relationship. But here, there is an element of domestic policy which plays a factor as well. Huge. Um, remember, as I said, these American Jewish organizations weren't pro-Israel. So almost all overnight, they become very pro-Israel. Mm -hmm. They're organized. APAC, you know, the there's that, you know, that Steve Walt anti-Semitic notion that, that the American-Israel alliance is a product of APAC, of this lobby. But um, he has exactly opposite. APAC is strong because of the alliance. And, and this, again, I know personally, APAC is strong for the alliance. It was the alliance that created the power of the so-called Israel lobby. Say another word about that, because that's a very unique assertion, I think, for most people. Again, these organizations exist before 67. They had no power. Their power derived from, from Israel. Uh, meaning that the door opened once Israel became a true strategic partner, the message that people, organizations like APAC wanted to deliver suddenly was already speaking to the choir, so to speak. It was speaking to a choir that was willing to listen to it. I, I don't know how to put it differently. You know, now we've come a full circle. I, I know this is going to come a huge shock to some of the members of these organizations, but the Jewish Voice for Peace, the, you know, In Tirzu, J Street, are all products of the pride and strength that the state of Israel gave to American Jewry. <laughs> in, in what sense? I mean, I think I understand what you're saying, but I'd love to hear specifically what it, you mean. It was it that gave American Jewry the confidence to stand up and speak its mind. Right. Ultimately, it would be some of them would speak their mind against Israel, but it's because of Israel. Right. Okay? And it's because of Israel, ultimately, that, that, that American Jews no longer understand the question, how can you be American and Jewish, too? There's an immense debt that's owed to Israel in this way in terms of American Jewish activism. So many of these, organ these organizations became pro-Israel. Um, organizations that had been anti-Israel, remained anti-Israel, were reduced to the periphery, the American Committee on Judaism, you know, just completely irrelevant. Um, and these organizations became increasingly politically active. Um, before, they were not, they were mostly social activism, but they did it with tremendous confidence. I'm an American but I'm also pro-Israel and don't, you know, don't accuse me of dual loyalty. 
so I think the ascent of APAC is particularly emblematic of this process. There's a very powerful piece I want to pull out of that, if I hear you correctly, that in some sense, the um, consolidation of this special relationship, not just around the strategic, but around the spiritual and the common values, um, erased the question of dual loyalty, because on some level, being a loyal American could be also being a loyal supporter of Israel. It didn't stand in opposition. I wrote a book about this called Ally. I, as an American Jew, felt fulfilled through my relationship with Israel. I didn't feel in any way I was betraying the United States, even, even as I gave up my American citizenship. I was fulfilling an American set of ideals. And I was, I was serving, I was an ambassador between two allies, two of the closest allies in the world. And I felt that that alliance was crucial for world stability. But it, these are very deeply held positions by me personally. They've been challenged by recent years, but they were very, very deeply held. Uh, and I wasn't the only one who felt that way. I think that people who are were active in APAC and other organizations like it felt that by being pro-Israel politically, they were fulfilling a part of them that was that was American and felt no contradiction. On the contrary, there was something, you know, mashlim, something fulfilling about it, a completion of sorts. Now we haven't talked about what what the Six-Day War did spiritually for American Jews. Sure. That it was a, a major shot in the arm. It was a chizuk. I was bar mitzvahed shortly after the Six-Day War, but I did my bar mitzvah from a conservative synagogue. I did my bar mitzvah in transliteration, mm-hmm. in English letters, because nobody taught me Hebrew. So you go even to reform synagogues today, and you'll see people, you go to a synagogue, go to a, to, to a reform bar mitzvah, sometimes the Hebrew is just extraordinary. Totally something beyond our can from the, from the 60s. It's Hebrew learning, it's learning in general, pardes comes to where I went in 1979 is a, is a direct result of that, really. Well, the parties was founded maybe a decade after the Six-Day War? In 1972, less. Well, less. Okay, so really, it's just a direct result. Sure. Where, where did that come? Where did the impetus for that type of institution come from? I remember, I'll just give you an image. My first Rosh Hashiva, Rabbi Chaim Bravender. Who well, I, knew, I like you know him <laughs> yeah. as well, I'm sure. He used to tell us stories about um, what it was like in the late 60s. Americans just showing up in Jerusalem, didn't know where they were, how they got there, but they wanted to learn. They yeah. wanted to learn and they would stay up all night with dictionaries and small pieces of text and just break themselves over it without even oh. really knowing why. Some of them didn't. And Bravinder is interesting because he's kind of a, an observant Jew who's also left wing. At least he used to be left wing. So he, in a way, is also a product of the 60s, you know, out of the Six Day War. He drew a different conclusion, but, but deeply impacted by that war. Um, I think the reification of, of, the, of the state of Israel with the land of Israel, and we tend to focus on the political ramifications of that, but the spiritual ramifications of that, also for American Jewry, were huge. Um, uh, an institution like KJ in, in, in the United States, right? And the day school system, I, I didn't have day schools when I grew up. I mean, really, I went to a public school. All received a, a, a tremendous impetus, a fill-up, if you were, for, for, from the Six-Day War. Right. It did. So I, I want to tap your specific historical knowledge. You know, President LB, uh, LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, is depending on who you read, portrayed as a staunch sort of stalwart supporter of Israel. Other people portray him as far more um, ambivalent. Uh, I'm a little bit curious how you see that and um, what you think changed when he declined to stand for election in 68 and 
you know, President Nixon came into office in the beginning of 69. Johnson was, I believe, a genuine, was very genuine in his feelings for Israel. Uh, he was a Texan. Uh, he viewed the Arabs like, like you know, the Mexicans who were attacking the Alamo. Israel was the Alamo. His greatest supporters were Jewish. He surrounded himself with Jews. Apparently, his, one of his major lovers was a Jew, as an Israeli. Very comfortable around Jews. He's a guy who comes from rural Texas. Was very comfortable around Jews. Abe Fortas, his people, just very, very close to him. Uh, Justice Goldberg, to whom we owe, um, I think, an ongoing historical debt in many ways. As ambassador, I made a point of visiting his, his, his grave. And uh, right. then Nixon comes in. Uh, Nixon received something in the order of 8% of the Jewish vote, no more. Uh, was viewed very coldly. A lot of suspicions about his anti-Semitism, which proved to be, I think, understated. And, um, and yet, Nixon turns out to be, after some very significant bumps, uh, the Rogers Peace Initiative, uh, a lot of tensions with Golda Meir as prime minister, not that warmth that Levi Eshkol had with, with Johnson. They kind of loved each other, um, but not Golda and not Nixon and not, not Kissinger. And that plays out in the, in the 73 war, very much so. But, and here's the big but, it was Nixon, not Kissinger, who ordered the airlifting of arms and ammunition to Israel during that war and in many ways saved us. He did it not because he loved Israel. He did it because he was against the Soviet Union. But okay, we'll take it. <laughs> well, it's also one of those three pillars that you spoke about is that the strategic relationship there is just as real as the spiritual and the commonality of values. Yeah, and you're gonna see how this all plays out during the Obama administration, which takes a different turn on all the pillars, by the way. So that's a perfect segue to, to my next, and perhaps if not second to last question, which is um, the subtitle of your books, uh, the book, The Six Days of War, which uh, if anybody listening has not read, I cannot recommend highly enough, both as a work of scholarship, but as you said, it just reads so well. Read it right after The Night Archer. I will read the right Night Archer next and then I'll read this again. But so the subtitle of the book is um, The Making of the Modern Middle East. And I'm curious, considering recent developments, I mean, take your pick, we could speak about, as you spoke about the secularization uh, of the United States, a rapid, um, the, the rise of Israel as a partisan issue within America, also the recent shifting potential alliance and certainly peace with certain Gulf states, the end of the Cold War. Are we entering into a postmodern Middle East where uh, something new is coming to be? An excellent question. It's one I've pondered myself. Looking back at that subtitle, um, the making of the modern Middle East, I used to be able to say unequivocally that you couldn't understand the modern Middle East without understanding the Six Day War. It was like the Big Bang. And um, and now I have to ask myself whether you can understand the modern Middle East without understanding the, the Iran nuclear deal, um, which has had, again, it's been another big bang. Um, but having said that, the Six-Day War provided the basis for our peace agreement with Egypt. It provided the basis for our peace agreement with Jordan. Um, it, it continues to um, have just far, far-reaching impact on Israeli society, on Jewish religion in this country on politics in this country, um, even in our relations with the United States. It's not just a strategic alliance. The fact that the United States recognized Jerusalem as our capital, that's because of the Six-Day War. The fact that the United States recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, Six-Day War. The Palestinian issue is a product of the Six-Day War. No one talked to the Palestinians before 1967. Nobody even knew who they were. Before 67, you're talking about the Palestinians, you're talking about Jews who lived in the land of Israel before May 1948. 
the PLO, the PA. This is all products uh, of the Six Day War. But uh, we have now have peace treaties with Bahrain and UAE. And these treaties were not on the basis of territory for peace. They did not involve ripping up settlements or, or you know, redividing Jerusalem. It did not. It didn't even involve the Palestinian issue. So it, it, I will be admit that it calls into question my sort of my fundamental um, thesis. You still need to know the Six Day War in order to understand the modern Middle East. But there are other factors involved too, not the least of which would be the Iran nuclear deal. You want to say a, one word about that before I ask the final question? What do you think is the profound impact of that Iran nuclear deal on the Middle East today? Well, it creates a new superpower in the Middle East, a new, a new hegemon, where Egypt has receded back. The, the, the big uh, controversy, the big competition back in the 60s was between Nasser and the radical secular uh, Arab regimes, uh, Syria, Iraq, and the, the, the religious monarchies, the traditional monarchies. Today, you still have the religious monarchies, but you have a new power, which is not secular. It's, it's competing religious power, which is uh, Shiite Iran, and, um, and intensely aggressive and intent on taking over the Middle East. By the way, in the way that Nasser wasn't intent on, on actually physically conquering territory, but Iran is. And, um, and, and, and just extensively armed and wants to be a nuclear power. And that has uh, forced the Arab countries to rethink their relationship with Israel. Um, we are not an enemy country. We don't threaten them. And in fact, we're here to help defend them. And they rethink that. And there was this little hurdle called the Palestinian issue. And they're fed up with the Palestinians and their rejectionism and their terror and their divisiveness. And they're not going to hold their countries, let the Palestinians hold the, the future of their countries hostage. That has changed. It also is related to uh, America's withdrawal from the Middle East. And after decades, when America was the regnant superpower here as elsewhere, America has retreated, uh, both under the Obama and Trump administrations. And so it's forced everybody in the region to think about, OK, how can we more closely ally with one another to defend ourselves against this Iranian threat? And uh, that is why the Iran nuclear deal, which has provided Iran with tens and tens of billions of dollars to spend on arms, which has given it unlimited license to, to conquer the Middle East, which has given the legitimacy to conquer the Middle East. Why it's such a threat and why it's such a game changer for the region, a huge game changer. Um, I just got off with a journalist uh, interviewing me about whether uh, the, a second Trump administration or a first Biden administration would negotiate with Iran for, for another a nuclear deal. And my answer was yes. Either way. Either way, mm -hmm. they'll try. Certainly. All right. So I want to just close out with um, pull back the lens a little bit and uh, ask you that. So as a historian and, and now I know also as a, as, a, as a writer of fiction, I'm curious, what do you feel that looking back at these events and using not just the critical lens, but the creative lens has to teach us about going forward? What kind of vision does a knowledge of the past provide? It's a theme which... I focus on a lot in the Jewish story. I'm very curious to hear from your experience, again, not just as a, an author, but as also someone who's been deeply involved um, in the day-to-day -day mechanics of how one puts a dream to reality. Well, that, that, there are many answers to this question. Um, and with your, with your permission, I'll end, I'll end it not as an historian um, or as a writer, but as a Jew. Great. Okay. So 
as 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 a person who's been in in diplomacy as a statesman, uh, I will tell you that uh, the Six Day War was a war that almost nobody foresaw, nobody wanted, certainly nobody anticipated its outcome. And the lesson for that is, uh, you know how things start, you have no idea how things end. True. <laughs> nobody knows. Nobody knows. And that you could wake up and find, you know, your world transformed. And I think that having lived through Corona, I don't have to convince your, your listeners that this is the case and to be humbled by that. Hmm. Humbled by, by, the, by the power and the uh, vicissitudes of history. Um, as, um, as a writer, again, the human drama and the role that, that, that human beings, people have in, in form because you cannot study the Six-Day War without understanding the tragedy of Gamal Abdel Nasser. And I say tragedy. You can't understand the Six-Day War without understanding this, the quiet heroism of Levi Eshkol. True heroism of Levi Eshkol. The frailty of, of Yitzhak Rabin. Hmm. The nefariousness of Moshe Dayan. <laughs> I can't say this. The guy was truly nefarious. Okay. Um, that is part of our story. Big part of our story. Um, and then there's my reaction as a Jew, which in itself is multifaceted. You know, one of my profoundest memories of the Six Day War was seeing my parents in front of the television set, watching the news and basically tearing their hair out because they were convinced that they were gonna witness a second Holocaust within a second generation. And the notion that the Jewish people can be destroyed, which is alien to so many young Jews, I'm just completely, as alien as the notion that there could be 3 million Jews who are imprisoned you know, behind the Iron Curtain, it, it's alien. But it's, it's deeply ingrained in me. I think it's ingrained in anybody of my generation. Yeah. Our prime minister is a good example that, that the Jewish state could be destroyed. The, the Jewish people can be annihilated. Um, is real for us. But, and here's the big but, is also the notion that we have been inestimably privileged to be born in the, in the age of Jewish miracles. And if you had given my great-great-grandfather a chance to, to, to live in, the, in a day, in an age where there would be an, an, an independent Jewish state with a strong, principled, victorious army, uh, which triumphed over forces that were seeking to kill Jews, and that army would, would gain the respect and admiration of all the nations of the earth, and particularly the most powerful nation on earth, you'd have a hard time convincing my great-great-grandfather that this wasn't a miracle. And so it's, it's sort of the, that, I guess you call it a two-edged sword, it's not a pun, in that on one hand, the realization that we can be destroyed. And the, the other realization that we are kind of inestimably blessed. That's fantastic. fantastic. I, I couldn't think of a better ending. Before I sign off, I do want to ask for people who are interested um, in getting a copy of The Night Archer or accessing any of your other books, your thought, what's the best way for them to go about doing that? Amazon, Apple. Great. You're out there. Dr. Michael Bye. Oren. Michael has has links to it all too. 
Excellent. Great. And I just want to say to all the folks listening, I want to thank you. I want to thank the folks who give their hard-earned money to make this show happen, keep it free and widely available. I want to invite you to join them. You can go to my website, jewishstory.co. There's a button in the upper right corner that says be a patron. Click on that for a little bit of per podcast support. Be in touch with me, RobMikeFoyer at gmail.com or on Facebook, RobMikeFoyer. I want to thank the Pardes Institute, P-A-R-D-S.org.il building an educational institution that gives me the privilege of teaching so many amazing Jews. Thank the Land of Israel Network. That's thelandofisrael.com. We're building a platform that gives me the privilege to reach so many people out there in the world. And I want to thank you for listening. I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story.